Thank you so much. Good morning. Over the course of December, what we're going to be doing is to look very carefully at some royal messianic psalms. They have to do with the Christmas season. Most significantly, they have to do with Jesus Christ, all of which are prophetic and have direct bearing upon the work of Jesus Christ. The second psalm, love for you, if you haven't done so already, to turn there because that's where we're going to have the focus of our of our thoughts, our meditation this morning. And now, let's just simply look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, we transition quickly out of one holiday moment to another in the course of these days. We know at a weekend such as this, there's coming and there is going. Tremendous transitions in the course of a few days' time. But there's a settledness when we enter into your presence and we focus on your word. There's a calm. There's a sense of permanence when we look very carefully at what it is that you've done through Jesus Christ. As we inch our way into this Advent season, and there are a host of things I'm sure on our calendars, and there are a lot of decisions to be made by us, regard to the way in which we prepare for the upcoming days. I'm asking, Father, that your word now speak to our hearts, that no matter what the issues that we're facing and the challenges that can sometimes seem so overwhelming, you're there, and that you minister profoundly at our point of need. So, Father, with your word open before us and our hearts now being prepared to receive your word, Warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. For again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus and him only. We pray these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we were looking carefully this morning at the second psalm, there's a story that emerges out of the time period of the United States history where just at the end of the Revolutionary War, there was a gathering of leaders who had come to draw up the plans for the Constitution for the United States. They were talking, they were discussing, they were deliberating, and they were not making much headway. But then Benjamin Franklin a representative from Pennsylvania, at this point 82 years of age, stood up before the assembly. And he began to call to their mind the dark days of the war that they had often met. And they had gathered in this very room of which he was now positioned to address them. They had gathered together in prayer. And they had found that again and again there was deliverance that had been offered. And so he looked at these men that were straining to be able to put together a plan for the future. And then he said this. If not a sparrow can fall to the ground without your heavenly Father, I am sure that no empire worth rearing can ever be raised 
without him. He was making a statement regarding the sovereignty of God. Now, what you and I want to do is we allow this poetic expression of God's sovereignty to speak to our hearts this morning is to realize that God is not only speaking these verses globally, but also he's got some very significant truths to communicate to you and to me personally. And while this can look expansive, at the same time, if you and I look at the principles involved, this has direct bearing on the way in which you and I go about living our lives, moving in, in fact, into this month of December. Now, if you're a musician, you're going to quickly realize you're dealing here with a composition from a psalmist who loves music, and it's composed, in fact, four stanzas pertaining to God's sovereignty. And each stanza has three verses associated with it. And each stanza has some statement to make with regard to God's sovereign workings, globally, but also in our lives, very personal. So we're going to look at these stanzas and try to relate them to where we're at today. And the first stanza out of verses 1 through 3 could be encaptured with these words. The number one, God's sovereignty here is apparent in the international hostility directed against him. Now look how he begins. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Notice that he wisely begins with a critical question. You and I have explored over the course of months prior, particularly in the summer, the tremendous value of creating, developing, cultivating a discussion about God, beginning with a critical question. Something must have been happening in the world at that point. But now what you and I want to do is to look very carefully at what is happening in the world at this point. What's going on in the Middle East? What's going on in this nation? And begin to ask people questions. Why? Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? And then you begin to personalize this. As they likewise, perhaps this person you're talking to, finds himself, herself in an emotional turmoil at this point, and they're wrestling with all the various plans that they've developed And it seems as though they're plotting simply in vain. As if everything seems to be working against them. Now what you want to do is to, over the course of these days, inching towards Christmas, look for ways to connect and pose critical questions that gets the person to start reevaluating where he or where she is coming from in relationship to God. But notice here in verse 1, he doesn't answer the question. He wants his readers to simply think. He wants those that are pondering his composition to begin to process, and just why are things the way they are in my personal life, in this national situation I'm in, in the global realities of where this world is at? In other words, what this psalmist is now doing 
is that he's drawing out the unrest of the heart and the disarray of the soul and getting us to begin to ask, and why is it that things are the way they are? Now, as soon as he poses that question, he moves into verse 2 and makes an observation. The kings of the earth set themselves. In other words, they have taken a position politically, nationally, globally. And now, plural, the rulers take counsel together. They seem to be in concert with one another. And they may, by nature, be opposed to one another, but there is something more significant that creates this coming together. And notice who it is. Against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, the word Lord, as you have quickly picked up now, capital L-O-R-D here, the name Yahweh God, covenantal God, the relational God. But Notice that the psalmist, is saying, there is more than one in the Godhead that I am speaking of at this point. Did you notice that? Because he goes on to say, and against his anointed one, which is the word for Messiah. The Hebrew word, the Greek word in the New Testament is the Christ. So now there seems to be a push against the second member of the Trinity, And you and I find ourselves thinking carefully about how all of that unfolded in the days of Jesus Christ subsequent to his resurrection, when as they were speaking in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. When they were released, Peter and John go to a prayer gathering, and in Acts 4.23, they went to their friends and told them everything that had just occurred. And in 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God. What did they say? Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by his, the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They are quoting this very Then, dramatically, in verse 27 of Acts 4, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was not an accident in time. This was an appointment in time. And God was sovereignly using the unbelieving Pontius Pilate, the unbelieving Herod, to achieve his purposes of Jesus going to the cross to die for our sins and on the third day be raised from the dead. 
And now he uses even the opposition against Jesus to fulfill his plan for you and for me through Jesus. And now they quote that very verse, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And I thought about that in the recent days of the 25th anniversary of the, of the Berlin Wall coming down. You know, in the communist Soviet Union regime, when a satellite had touched outer space, Moscow's magazine said that from Earth's standpoint, from a communist point of view, our world at last is under new management. But then the walls came down. And if you look very carefully at what was happening behind the walls, you will find the sovereign God at work among his people in Eastern Europe at that time. For instance, Romania. Laszlo Tokesh, pastor of Reformed Church there in that nation, boldly from his pulpit proclaimed the scriptures. And as he did so, slowly but surely, there was a movement afoot. There, was, there were concentric circles, ripple effects taking place. The communists came in, attempted to take him away. But the peoples began to gather around that physical church structure to keep the police away. Finally, they broke through the crowd, dragged him away, and the people began demonstrating against the communist government. Troops fired on them, but their brave example inspired the entire country, and within days, the Romanians had risen up in Ceausescu, their, their political leader, was gone. East Germany. Johannes Richter, pastor of St. Thomas Church in Leipzig, put it this way, quote, We did not encourage disobedience to the government. What we did was to encourage obedience to God. But mass demonstrations erupted all over East Europe, East Germany, And soon thereafter, the Berlin Wall was destroyed. And we have recently celebrated in these past weeks the 25th anniversary of that. And now here is God. And he is saying that this is the thinking, this is the process. Whatever God's word is being communicated, and those that want sovereignty over their space are pushing back. They're saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us, speaking of the resistance to the first and the second members of the Trinity. And what you see here is the tremendous tension between authority and liberty, which takes place not only politically, but also takes place personally, where people want their freedom. And so they push back against God, having lordship over their lives. And then they wonder, why is it that things keep coming apart? 
you know, in a recent World magazine, there was a quote that introduced an article. And the quote comes from the poet William Yeats. And it's published, it published his description of the effects of dest- devastation in Europe after World War I. You might even remember the quote. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. But then in the opening paragraph of this World Magazine article, the writer then takes us through what has recently happened from Iraq to Syria, from Israel to the Ukraine, wars, rumors of wars, and so on, and then writes, It's not unlike New Testament days when the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians from a prison cell in Rome under the threat of execution. Paul had a different take than Yeats. Yeats had written, Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. But Paul wrote, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Brilliant. Now, what do you do with that at a very personal level? You may have loved ones, and it may even be you, and things seem to be falling apart. And it seems as though the center doesn't hold. Are you trying to be sovereign? Are you a control freak? And you're trying to hold all the pieces together in the conflicts, the tensions, and the challenges of life. Is your philosophy that of Yeats? Or is your theology that of Paul? Because it was Paul himself that would write that in him all things hold together. And now here you see in these opening verses that the nations are simply thrusting and they're, and they're, they're pushing back as well against God's sovereignty. And maybe within your own extended family, some people are doing the very same thing. And what you've got to do is to break it to the personal, local level of everyday living and be able to say here, God's sovereignty is even apparent in all of this in the international hostility directed against him, if a Pontius Pilate and a Herod could seek to find ways to foil Jesus Christ, and then in retrospect, you and I see that God sovereignly used those two individuals, unbelievers though they were, as part of the plan to bring Jesus to the cross to die for your sins and mine, and on the third day be raised from the dead. If God can take all of that and then promise that, Centuries prior in this second psalm, can't he hold the center of your life together when it seems like everything wants to come apart? There's a second stanza here. And if you love music, you follow now the composition as it continues to unfold. And the second stanza likewise It has three verses associated with it. How are we going to summarize it? Well, number two, God's sovereignty is apparent. 
in the global authority possessed by him. Notice verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. You say, what kind of loving God would do that? Let's say that somewhere in the course of either this Thanksgiving weekend or prior Thanksgiving weekends, let's just say for the sake of the analogy that you are, were a parent of a young child or children. And there have been a lot of people in the house, and now the hours are getting on, and you're noticing that a particular child is getting agitated, getting loud, losing it. And it's time to pick up that child and take the child to bed. Now, I've gone through this. And so you pick up that child and you start walking up the steps and the child is kicking you and the child is thrusting against you. And my children say, I still have this response. It's a half grin on the face and a squinty eye approach to a situation. They're not hurting you. You are, in essence, in control, walking them into the bedroom because the time is now appropriate to bring a peace and a calm to the home. Now, what God is sovereignly doing at this point is he's taking all the unrest and he knows the time of the hour. And so he moves things along so that he can bring rest in the midst of unrest into the situations that we find ourselves in. That's your sovereign God. But what I want you to notice here as you go back to that text is that while all the various leaders of this world are rushing here and there to expand the boundaries of life, God is seated. He's not running around trying to maintain control. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. But now what we find is that he is taking us forward to the finale of all of history still to come. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, and notice this very carefully, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And Herod in Matthew chapter 2 is pushing back. As Magi now appear on the scene, and they want to know, where is the one born king of the Jews? Come from the east. Come to worship him. And you realize that it's not the people of Israel, it's not the people of Rome that have established him as king. Notice the wording here found in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king, God the Father, dealing with God the Son, on Zion, my holy hill, which is the positional aspect of of future geography of Jesus Christ's return. And it's in keeping with what God had promised David and his descendants in 2 Samuel 7. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
And now you and I, what we find here is that we have a sovereign who is in control and everything is under him, personally, nationally, globally. Years ago, in a Wall Street Journal article, there was this, this title of God and Men. The article began noting how the presidents of the United States seemed to end their speeches with, and God bless America. And furthermore, noted the coinage in America and other such, such statements, a nation under God. And the writer, a European, wrote, Europe and the United States are drifting apart not only on foreign policy, but also on their vision of a democratic society and of the proper relationship between politics and ethics. For the idea of God bless America, the writer put it, is unlikely to ever have been uttered in a European parliament. The U.S. president would be considered unfit for his job on account of his religious beliefs. Even worse for Europe's legislators would be that he's not ashamed to express those beliefs so clearly, so publicly. And now here is a God who has positioned his king where on Zion, where that future return has already been established And you look at 1948, and lo and behold, Israel becomes a nation, and everything is set in motion for that to take place as he adds, my holy hill. And you begin to ponder the significance of even the ascension of Jesus Christ, the place of Christ's return. And you ponder, not a nation, but a world under God. And now you look at your life. And you ask, is everything under God here? Or is something outside of his will? And if so, does it seem as though the center isn't holding? And things are coming apart. And what do I have to do to acknowledge once again that Jesus Christ is king of my life? I crown thee now, thine shall the glory be. You're wrestling with these verses, aren't you? And then you're brought into the third stanza, where there are three verses associated with it from 7 down through 9. And now you and I find thirdly that God is sovereign. And God's sovereignty is apparent in the royal dynasty. The royal dynasty established by him, where we're told, I will tell of the decree that's evangelistic. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And astoundingly, amazingly, in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, when the apostle Paul was ministering in Antioch and Pisidia, he spoke of the fact of the good news that what God promised to the fathers is fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it's written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he's brought the resurrection to Christmas. Do you? Mark Judge did. 
Mark Judge talks about a time where he walked into a a store run by the Eastern Orthodox Church out in the Washington, D.C. area. And he was struck by how when he entered the store, immediately the person greeting people said, Christ is risen. Taken aback, Mark Judge said, well, he is risen indeed. He thought to himself, why does that have to be contained in a, in a Eastern Orthodox store? Let me take it out to the streets and into other stores. And so he tells us in a Breakpoint article, I tried it at three stores. It was the Christmas season. Now at the first, the nice young lady rang up my purchase with some clothes. Thank you, she said. Christ is risen. I shouted. Thank you, she blinked, backing away from me. He is risen indeed, I said, because she didn't respond. And she seemed relieved when I made my way to the exit. So I entered a second store, music store. More the same, except this time it was a male teenage clique. Christ is risen. Um, I don't think we have that CD, he said. He is risen indeed. Um, you may want to check out the Christian section, he said. And then he reached for the phone. He was about to buzz the manager as I made my way to the front door. But the third time, the third time was charm. It was a middle-aged African-American man. He had an accent, I guess, was from Nigeria, And lo and behold, he began to respond when I said, Christ is risen. Amen, he shouted back with a laugh. So I told him the proper response, and he nodded, but he didn't repeat it. But he leaned forward and said, I believe it. And then, like a member of a dissident underground movement, he got close to my ear and whispered, And Merry Christmas. What's going on here? Are you connecting the dots? This is full-spectrum theology unfolding in front of our very eyes in this psalm. The psalmist is connecting Christmas and Good Friday and Easter, and ascension, the return of Jesus Christ, and the grand finale of all history, poetically, musically, in these verses. And now he wants to bring it to you and ask, is the center holding? Is he king of your life? Or does it seem to be simply all coming upon? So now, the psalmist in verse 8, as these words being shared within the covenantal relationship of the God had asked of me. And I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You've read on into the book of Revelation and you know how all this turns out. And so in verse 9, you, speaking of God the Father, words for God the Son, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
And he's talking about that future moment of Armageddon and how all of this ties together in the messianic plan of God. You know, a Roman leader of time past, his name was known as Julian the Apostate, was waging a campaign against Persia. It's modern-day Iran. One of the soldiers in the army said this to a believer who was being abused. So where's your, your carpenter now? Question. Great response. My risen Savior is making a coffin for your emperor, came the reply. And a few months later, that emperor was found bleeding on the battlefield, about to die, and shouted out, You have conquered, O Galilean. But why wait? Why not put faith and trust in the one of whom all of this is already spoken? Because it leads you and me now into this fourth stanza. We're now in verse 10 down to verse 12. There's some guidelines. There's some counsel. There's some advice that's coming from the Godhead. Because fourthly, God's sovereignty is apparent here in the political counsel given by him. And notice what God says to all the leaders of this world. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Notice how he couples warning and wisdom. Pulls it all together. And now if you and I have been properly warned and we have grown with wisdom, we ask ourselves, what do I do with all of this? And how do I take this globally expansive song and personalize it? Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with fear. And in this Christmas season, when we sing joy to the world, notice the tremendous tension he brings to the soul regarding God's sovereignty. Rejoice. Rejoice with trembling. In verse 12, you ponder the phrase, kiss the sun. But then you realize that in the days of the psalmist and on into the Roman Empire, when an emperor was seated on his throne and victory had been secured, the soldiers would kiss the signet ring of the emperor. And now what the psalmist is doing in advance is speaking of the victory of Jesus Christ through death and resurrection. And he's saying to the whole wide world, Give homage, give respect, submit to the Son. See how prophetic and poetic it is simultaneously? Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And then, if you've got a troubled heart, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Lincoln had a troubled heart. Marvin Olasky, a writer, of course, and a leader with World Magazine, has written a book entitled The American Leadership Tradition and talks about the spiritual transformation of Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. In 1862, his life took a dramatic turn. The war wasn't going well for the Union. 
He was being savaged by both Yankee and Confederate press. And then personal tragedy. His son, Willie, died. And his wife, Mary Todd, began to turn towards spiritism and seances. But Olasky informs us, and he's a historian, that Lincoln, on the other hand, began to seek God and to seek solace in the Scriptures. Confronted with the loss of little Willie and yet another devastating union effect at the Second Battle of Manassas, a humble Lincoln finally embraced Christ, Olasky writes, Quote, My own wisdom seemed insufficient, he wrote to a friend. Later, Lincoln confided that he was driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. Ever felt that way? Lincoln's words speak even to you and me. Because he then told a friend, when everyone seemed panic-stricken. You ever felt that way? I got down on my knees before the sovereign God and prayed. And soon a settled peace crept into my soul. Does that distinguish your life this morning? And where do you go when the center doesn't seem to hold? In him, all things hold together. Let's stand together. We're awed by this musical composition. How you've musically, poetically, in 12 verses, hold together such a rich understanding of the full spectrum of Christ entering into this world to die for our sins, being raised, ascending, returning, and how it all fits together and how it applies to us. So if there's anybody right now so overwhelmed by life, and for the person, Father, who comes in standoffish to you and keeping you at arm's length, remind all the various sorts of reactions to you that we're not sovereign. You are. It was Christ who was raised from the dead. And it is from the seated throne room of heaven that these words then are shared for us to embrace and to trust. And so if there's one here today who's finding that the center is no longer holding, pray now they'll turn to you and trust you and you alone for salvation. Commit all these matters to you now, all of them. In Jesus' name.